Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Hal Goodwin's The Lost City, Volume 4, Chapter 10, The Odor of Menthol. Rick grabbed for the compartment door handle and started to swing it open when Scotty caught his arm. The train's moving, you dope, Rick whirled. But Chada's out there. Van Groot knocked him down. Scotty pulled him away from the door. You can't do anything about it now. You'd be killed if you tried to get off. You've got to stop the train, Rick said desperately. The professors joined Scotty. It's unfortunate, Zircon spoke with finality. But there's nothing we can do, Rick. The boy just missed the train, that's all. Yeah, but why did Van Groot hit him? Are you sure he did that, Rick? Weiss asked. Of course I'm sure. He was running up the platform shouting something. When he got to Van Groot, I saw him knock Chada down with his riding crop he carries. Odd, Zircon frowned. Maybe he just brushed against Van Groot, Scotty suggested. He doesn't like Indians. He might knock him down. Well, that is it, of course, Weiss agreed. Rick sank into the compartment seat. They were far out of the station now, and railroad yards were giving way to open country. They had crossed the bridge from Bombay to the mainland of India. I wonder why Chada was so late, Rick said, and his thoughts kept going back to the Hindu boy's comments on the map. He said the route to Tangibu was wrong. I imagine the Asiatic Geographical Union knows more about that than Chada, Weiss remarked. Well, maybe he went to go say goodbye to his family, Scotty said. Zircon shrugged. Whatever the reason, he's far behind us now. It's regrettable that Van Groot struck him, but I think Scotty's explanation accounts for that. Chada brushed against him, and Van Groot retaliated. Rick stared morosely out the window. He wasn't satisfied with any of the explanations offered, but he didn't have any better ones at present. They would probably never know because in a few days Chada would be a thousand miles behind them. He looked around the compartment, noticing that Zircon had arranged for boxes and rations and for sheets and pillowcases. Their equipment was in the next compartment. The door was securely locked. He reached up and turned on the fan and unhappily settled himself for the long trip. Days and nights intermingled, and Rick couldn't have said how long they were traveling. The stops were the only things that broke the monotony. They would get out, walk on the platform to stretch their legs, and crowds of natives would gather at a little distance and watch them. The crowds were as much a part of India as the clay dust and the red brass sun. They waited for the train at one stop, and the same crowd seemed to be waiting for it at the next. So uniform were they in character. They looked alike, they sounded alike, their wild cries as they hawked their wares, their begging, their murmured conversations all blended and formed a vast sigh that was purely Indian. Sometimes Scotty looked longingly at the fresh food offered by the vendors on the station platforms, but those foods were not safe to eat. Even the water wasn't safe, and they had to drink the stale, warm, boiled water provided for passengers. When they ate, it was sparingly from the boxes of rations. Occasionally, Zircon did permit them to buy a little fruit, but they had to peel it so thoroughly that little was left but the stones. They didn't talk much. It was too hot to think about things to say. Rick and Scotty slept as much as they could, 
for sleep was their only escape from the heat, the dust, and the monotony. Rick, wake up! Hit the deck! It was Scotty standing over him, fully dressed. Where are we? Rick asked. Nepal, the end of the line! Rick jumped to the window. The long journey was finally over. The tracks had come to a dead end against the side of a mountain. There was a ramshackle wooden station and a white-roofed building beside it. And noise. That crowd was waiting again. But this crowd didn't sigh like the ones in India. This crowd growled. They were all men and dressed in strange padded clothing that looked like tailored quilts. Their feet were wrapped in bulky bandaged like coverings and lashed tightly with thongs. Their faces were swarthy and all of them seemed to be exactly the same height as though a blight had stunted them simultaneously. And beyond, like a great curtain, stood the mountains of Tibet. Each one in the party reached for his quota of baggage and hurried toward the door of the train. Rick was the first to step to the ground and as he did so, the growl of the crowd rose in crescendo and moved in on him. He gave Zircon and Weiss a hand with their baggage, and soon the four were standing in the center of the mob on the platform. One of us will have to supervise the unloading of the equipment, Zircon shouted above the din. I'll do it, sir, Scotty offered, and pushed his way back toward the compartment. Looks like they all want to work for us, Rick commented, scanning the avid faces. We'll pick no guide from this mob. Zircon answered. I'm to see the Tibetan border official here. The scientist began pushing through the closely packed noisy crowd and Rick followed him to the official looking building beside the station. Weiss went back to help Scotty. Zircon took the four passports from his pocket and walked through the door marked customs. It took a moment to become accustomed to the dimness but they finally located a cubby hole of an office at the end of the gloomy hall. A slim figure stepped from the door and bowed. He wore a strangely mixed garb, a wide blue sash, balloon sleeve shirt, and striped pants pressed the wrong way. They looked as though they were worn only for official business, and business had been poor since 1923. Saz, he purred, bowing again. What can I do for you? Uh, yes, I'm Professor Zircon, the scientist began. Of the American party, yes, the man finished for him. So too bad. I am sorry. He said this in a monotone, flicking his liquid brown eyes from one to the other. It was difficult to understand these people, Rick thought. They were always sorry for something. He wondered what it was this time. Sorry for what? Zircon asked. The official bowed low again. Regards, permission for the entry into Tibet. Revoked it were, suddenly revoked. Rick looked at Zircon, and for a moment they were both speechless. Then Zircon exploded. Revoked? Look here. This was a scientific expedition. We've come halfway around the world. This thing was settled through official channels a long time ago. It couldn't have been revoked. Ah, yes, suddenly revoked, the official repeated. Rick looked hard at the man and decided he didn't like him. He resented his abruptness in telling them the bad news, as if he had rehearsed it. Look here, Zircon roared. I gotta get in touch with your Tibetan government. There's been a mistake. The official grinned. 
No wires to August government. Rick felt sure the man had been waiting to spring that on them. Then his nose detected an odor. So accustomed had he become to the sea of smells that was India that he no longer had the habit of consciously identifying each one. But this odor struck his nostrils and burned. Menthol. Into his mind flashed the picture of a menthol-dipped tissue held to a sniffing nose. It was incredible. They were a thousand miles, half a world away from Bombay, and yet here was a trademark. The unexpected revocation of permission, the story that sounded rehearsed, the very type of man before them, all seemed to be connected somehow with the menthol. The official stared out the dingy window as though he had forgotten them completely. Zircon stomped up and down the room, choking with frustration and anger. Then Rick spoke out, with a growing certainty in his mind, turning his back so the official could not see his face. He hoped that Zircon saw his wink as he said, If we're going to be delayed, sir, shouldn't we pay off our bearers so that they can return to Bombay? Bearers? What bearers? Zircon bellowed. Rick waked again. Our manservants, sir, he said. This time Zircon caught the wink, but Rick could see that it meant nothing to him. He raced on, praying that his sudden scheme was going to work. There you go, sir, forgetting them again. Why, I'll bet you even forgot to have those large rupee notes changed. He turned to the official. Could you change a 500 rupee note? He asked. Rick's heart leapt as the man jumped at the bait. Of course, he purred and reached into his pocket. Rick motioned to Zircon to give him the 500 rupee note. The scientist took it from his pocket, cocking his head in bewilderment. Rick handed the note to the official, then almost snatched the paper change from the man's hand. He held it quickly to his nose and sniffed. I knew it. Smell this, sir. He held the money up to Zircon's face. The money was pungent with menthol, but still Zircon looked puzzled. What is all this, Rick? Well, sir, doesn't this entry permission business look like a put-up job to you? Light was dawning on Zircon now. He nodded. Why is it that this man was able to change our 500-rupee note out of his own pocket? He doesn't make enough money to carry that large a sum around with him, does he? Zircon stared at the official. You mean you think he's been bribed? Yes, I do, sir, Rick answered. As he spoke the words, he saw the official edging toward the door and knew his accusation and struck home. Just a moment, Zircon bellowed. Is this boy right? No, sir. Zircon took a step toward the man. Well, I'm going to take a chance that he is and report you to your superior. He'll not only have you discharged, but he'll take every cent of the bribe from you for not splitting it with him. Rick realized at once that Zircon could not have chosen a more effective threat, for the man immediately began bowing and purring. Perhaps forgot, he said. Perhaps overlooked. He shuffled over to his ratty little desk and opened up a drawer. As he did so, a look of exaggerated surprise suffused his features. Ah, I make a mistake, he beamed, and held out an official-looking document. Now I stamp passports. He imprinted them with a heavy seal. Zircon snatched them from his hand and flashed a triumphant look at Rick. 
I should have you beheaded, he bellowed and started away from the office. Wait, sir, Rick called. What about the man who gave the bribe and the menthol? No bribe, the official demurred softly. The menthol doesn't prove anything, Sarkon said from the doorway. Besides, it would take a week to wring information from this fellow, and we don't have time. Rick realized from the look on the official's face that he realized this fact full well. With the passports, the white men would probably be willing to go off and leave him with his loot. Rick glared at the man and reluctantly followed Zircon out of the building. We'd probably save ourselves a lot of trouble if we found out who gave that guy the bribe, sir, and why. If we did find out, what could we do about it? Zircon asked flatly. Yeah, what could we do? Rick thought. But that odor of menthol, it was there, and whether Zircon thought so or not, Rick was convinced that the perpetrator of all their troubles had given himself away. Hendrik Van Groot. He was the man who had stolen their equipment, ordered it pushed into the sea. The man who sometimes traveled under the name of Conway. Rick felt sure of it now. But why had he done all this? Rick followed Professor Zircon back toward the crowd at the railway station. At the sight of the big man, the yells of the mob increased in intensity. Now I'll have to use my own judgment about a guide, Zircon said. He stared at the multitude of natives, all clamoring for the job as they massed about him. Weiss hurried to his side. How do you get those devils quiet, Hobart? Zircon scratched his chin and cupped his hands to his mouth and shouted for quiet. But they screamed all the louder. Weiss yelled something, first in Mongol, and then in a strange gibberish. The tone of the mob rose to an even higher pitch. Then Scotty stepped forward. Allow me, he said. He put his fists on his hips and yelled at the top of his lungs. The crowd hushed like a slowing Victrola record and was still. That's a miracle, Zircon exclaimed. What did you say? Not a thing, Scotty replied, grinning. It's the face that you make that counts, not the words. An old top sergeant's trick. I swear, if we pick one of these men, the others would kill him just in sheer resentment, Weiss whispered. The bulky little men were staring at Scotty and the other three with fierce eyes. I wish I knew how to go about this, Zircon said. Then his problem was solved for him. Out of the crowd, where he had been squatting unseen till this moment, stepped a huge man who towered above the other applicants. Even Zircon looked small beside him. One eyelid drooped half shut, giving him a sly, knowing look. His tangled black hair mounted to a peak. He was almost humorous in appearance, except for the stringy black mustache that curved in a sinister parenthesis about his wide mouth. He tapped his chest with a beefy hand and folded his arms and announced, Me Samid, number one guide boy. The party could not suppress grins, and it seemed to amuse this bulk of a man. He grinned, too, and his teeth were like a picket fence with a few staves knocked out. Much number one strong, he grunted, and in two steps he was beside the equipment piled on the platform. Before anyone could stop him, he had lifted the very biggest of the boxes, and with barely a shiver of his arms held it high above his head and tossed it in the air as the party winced, and then caught it again. 
He lowered it easily to the ground and smiled. Rick felt like applauding, but he could see the Zircon was not quite convinced. Do you know Tengi Boo Plateau? He asked. Samid bobbed his head. Much no Tengi Boo, he replied. The other strangely clad men in the mob were grumbling now. They wanted to know what decision was being made. Then Samid turned and swept his arm in a fierce gesture over the heads of the mob and growled. Even a heavyweight champion would have ducked at the sweep of that oak-like arm. The crowd moved back. I don't think they dare to try for the job now, Weiss said. Well, I guess he's our man, then, Sirkhan decided, looking the giant up and down. He nodded to him. But we need bearers and animals, he said to Weiss. Samid had anticipated this need. He was pointing to one after the other of the gnome-like men in the crowd, and they moved to his side. When he had collected thirty of them, he grunted something in an odd gibberish, and they trotted toward the railway station. Soon they were leading mules and animals resembling oxen toward the pile of equipment, and without orders from anyone started loading the boxes onto the backs of the animals. Rick looked at the spindly legs of the beasts. Are those things going to carry our stuff over the mountains? He pointed to the Himalayas. They're yaks, Zircon informed him. The standard beast of burden in Tibet. Very sure-footed. The mules can take care of themselves, too. They watched the silent, sweating men load the equipment onto the backs of the beasts as Samid stood over them with folded arms. Soon, only the biggest of the boxes, the one that Samid had played ball with, was left. It was obvious that the bearers were waiting for him to lift it onto the back of the largest yak. Then Zircon did a thing that made Rick's eyes pop open. As Samid stooped to grasp the corners of the box, the scientist stepped to his side and tapped him on the shoulder. The giant rose and the scientist took his place. His broad back bulged as he took the corners of the box, and to Rick's amazement, swung the load high over his head, as Samid had done. Then he held it there and smiled into the guide's eyes. It was the first reaction, except a smile that Rick had seen cross the giant's face. His chin dropped and stayed there. Zircon lowered the box of the animal's back and lashed it tight. Without another look at the giant, he turned and strode back toward Rick, Scotty, and Weiss. Just to show him who's boss. The scientist smiled. The animals were flogged to their feet by the bearers. Samid led the way up a wide road toward the mountains, and with a last look at the civilization they would not see for many months to come, Rick and Scotty fell in behind the scientists. If trouble were to follow, Rick decided, it would have rough going from here on out. Chapter 11. Tibet the road stretched ahead, and in less than an hour, they had crossed the border into Tibet. There didn't seem to be a level inch, so far as the eye could see. The cries of the bearers urging the animals on echoed against the surrounding walls of earth that seemed to be narrowing like a funnel ahead. Suddenly, there began to appear strange markings on the rocks of the mountains. Om, Bani, Padme, Hum... Rick read slowly. The inscription was everywhere now, on the lip of a gorge, 
The painter must have been a human fly to etch it up there, and again against a flat peak. Rick hurried to Zircon's side and pointed to one of the painted legends. What does it mean? he asked. Hail the jewel on the lotus, Zircon translated. Rick scratched his head. And what does that mean? Zircon laughed. It's the way the people of Tibet gain merit in the eyes of Buddha. They risk their lives in these painting projects to perpetuate his wisdom. But there are more and more of them as we go along. How come? Rick asked. We're on the road to Lhasa, Zircon explained, the holy city of the Tibetans, where sits the boy ruler, the Dalai Lama. They pour over this road by the thousands every day on their way to Lhasa to worship him. Scotty joined them and they laughed when he referred to the signs and the carved images as Tibetan billboards. In the mountains, day was with them one moment and had fled to blackness the next. There was no dusk, and before they knew it, the caravan was tramping in darkness. Rick heard the shouts of the bearers and the orders of Samid drifting back through the darkness. He almost ran into the last yak in the caravan before he realized they had come to a halt. We'll be pushing as fast as we can, Zircon explained. No point in stopping until we have to. We have to now, Scotty said. It's too dark to see. Where do we sleep? Rick asked. Right here, Weiss answered. No one travels these roads at night. They're the best place to be. Okay, Rick said. Come on, Scotty, let's unpack our gear and curl up on Tibet Highway Number 1. Scotty lifted the sleeping bags and the duffel bags of clothing off the pack yak and dumped them on the ground. As he did so, there was a crinkle of paper. There's Barbie's present, he remarked. He held it up to his ear. What do you suppose it is? I could guess, Rick answered, but I won't. It wouldn't be fair. You're right, Scotty agreed. Let's see, where can I put this? Well, mine is in with the spare parts, Rick said. Scotty took his flashlight and leveled it at a pack yak who carried boxes of rations. I'll put it with this bunch of chow, he decided. Then I'll know where it is. You always know where the food is, Rick jived. He unrolled the fleece-lined sleeping bag and unzipped it. It was an army type and equipped with an extra cover that could be propped up like a tent in bad weather. No matter how cold it might get, they would sleep warmly. Fires were springing up. The bearers were getting ready to eat. They had brought their own rations, mutton mostly, and bricks of tea. Their water was carried in skins, while the white men had brought canned water from the states in their ration crates. Samid saw to it that there was a fire lit for the scientists and the boys. It burned with a low blue flame due to some peculiarity of the wood. Bundles of it had been brought along on two of the mules. Scotty tore open one of the big ration cases and said, Bake it in eggs tonight, with fruitcake for dessert, and coffee. He produced the items as he named them. The ground-up bacon and powdered eggs tasted good, and they ate with appetite while the bears squatted over their meals of mutton, boiled rice, and tea. After the meal, the professors retired at once to their sleeping bags, but Rick and Scotty walked back along the trail, 
looking at the stars that seemed to press close with clean iciness. We're on the roof of the world, Rick said. But the stars look the same. Look, there's the Big Dipper. The constellation was like an old friend overhead. They watched the stars in silence for a few moments, then went back to their sleeping bags and climbed in. There was no sound, no cry of bird or beast, and for a moment the very silence kept them awake, but only for a moment. When dawn came, it was sudden, like a huge light being switched on. The boys awakened to the sound of the bearers preparing the morning meal and to the stomping of the pack animals. They shivered as they crawled from the warm sleeping bags. The professors were already up, and the aroma of hot tea sharpened their appetites. There were hamburger cakes for breakfast, taken from the big ration boxes, and crackers and fruit bars. While the bearers packed the animals, they stood at the edge of the trail, looking down into a gorge that vanished into the morning mist over a trackless valley far below. Soon the wooden rods of the bearers slapped against tough hide, and the animals started their ponderous progress. Samid took his place at the head of the caravan. The boys and the professors fell in behind, and the procession moved on. It was shortly after this dawn start that Rick pulled up beside Scotty and said, I thought you were in condition, Sarge. So did I, answered Scotty, who was breathing heavily. And then he grinned. And you, stop holding your breath so you won't puff, you faker. Rick took a deep breath, but couldn't seem to get enough air into his lungs. It's the altitude, Scotty told him. Professor Zircon's sails were up at 7,000 feet here. Rick whistled. And going higher, Scotty added. Rick looked at the mountains that mounted like stairs before them. What we need is my Piper Cub. Your little baby would never make it over these, Scotty said, pointing at the snow-clad peaks. Proud as he was of his little plane back on Spindrift Island, Rick had to admit that Scotty was right. His thoughts were beginning to turn toward home when he heard a commotion from the front of the caravan. Looks like Zircon and Samit are having a confab, Scotty remarked. They walked to the side of the two men. As they reached them, Rick heard Zircon ask, Does this ridiculous path correspond to the line on the map? Rick looked toward the path at which Zircon was pointing. It did seem ridiculous that they should turn off this fairly good road onto the narrow winding path to the left. Samit, however, was shaking his head in a violent affirmative. Thingy boo, wait there, he said. Zircon checked the map again. Well, the map makers who charted this should know, he muttered, but it does seem to be doing it the hard way. He folded the map and returned to his case and motioned to Samid to carry on. In the coolness of the mountains, the sun seemed to race on its journey from one horizon to the next, and before he knew it, Rick had counted three such trips by old Saul. I think I'm beginning to get used to this thinner atmosphere after three days, Rick told Scotty. Me too. I wish the scenery would change, though. That's what she said about India. Relax. This is why people pay big money for vacations in the mountains. Who's kicking? Scotty answered in a preoccupied way, looking at something far off to his left. What are you staring at? Rick asked. A sheep herder, I guess, 
Scotty pointed toward a high cleft in the mountain behind them. Looks as though he's carrying a bow and arrow, though. I don't see anything, said Rick, shading his eyes. Scotty squinted, then shook his head. Well, he was there. I guess he's gone now, though. Well, we're probably the first white men the poor old sheep herder ever saw, Rick grinned. Let him have his peek. It was plain as the days wore on that Zircon was not pleased with the ruggedness of the going. He had expected narrow trails, he growled, but not rat runs. It seemed to Rick that every time they did come out upon a fairly usable trail, the map would indicate a turn, and they would be back to clinging to the sides of peaks. Thus, on the third Sunday of their journey, Scotty saw something again. He pointed behind them, but before Rick could hurry to his side, it was gone. It's just a mirage, Rick laughed. Only radar tramps like us would be silly enough to be found in this neck of the woods. But Scotty kept turning his head to eye the rocks and ledges behind him. Twice more he called to Rick to look where he pointed, but neither time could Rick see the figure that Scotty said was there. Then one day, Samid disengaged himself from the head of the caravan. As he walked back toward Zircon, he kept looking down into the valley from which they had just come. He stopped before the big scientist and beckoned him to the edge of the cliff and pointed far down and behind them. Rick and Scotty hurried to his side and followed the giant's gaze. For a moment, Rick could see nothing but dull brown rock. Then suddenly... He gripped Scotty's arm. A streak of white had dodged from the shelter of a boulder and ran to the protection of another. It seemed tiny at this distance, but it was a figure and one that obviously didn't want to be seen. Zircon looked from Rick to Scotty and then said flatly, We're being followed. Chapter 12 The Watchers Immediately after the white-clothed figure disappeared, Zircon ordered a double guard on their encampments. Rick, Scotty, and the professors alternated in watching over the sleeping camp. Scotty was sure that the white figure was not one of the figures he had seen previously. The other figures had not been dressed in white. On the second night after the doubling of the guard, it was Scotty's turn to stand first watch. Rick was dog-tired from the day-long hike and the moment he stretched out, he was asleep. He had no idea how long he had slept or what woke him, but he found himself starting to sit up slowly, not knowing why he was doing it. Had he heard a sound? He strained into the darkness. Then Rick heard it, Scotty's low whistle. That was their private signal. Again it pierced the darkness, and this time he located it off to his right. Grabbing his tiny flashlight, he scrambled barefoot across the loose rock, gritting his teeth in anguish at each noisy crunch. He almost fell over Scotty in the darkness, and with a tremble in his voice whispered, What is it? I don't know, Scotty answered hoarsely. Sit here and watch. Rick eased himself to a sitting position and stared in the direction Scotty had indicated. Little lights began to dance before his eyes as he tried to pierce the darkness. For a full quarter hour, they barely breathed as they waited for some betraying sound, and finally it came. A sliding sound, then a ripping of cloth, and a soft exclamation in the dark, and then quiet again. Over there, 
Scotty said, jabbing his finger toward the curve in the path. And then they saw it, a white-clothed figure silhouetted against the sky. How did he get by the guard? Rick asked. Well, that's probably his racket, Scotty whispered. They watched the figure bob up and run behind a rock and then scamper closer to them. We are going to take this character with the old school tackle, Scotty whispered. Great, you go high, I'll go low, Rick answered. And they crouched together. For a moment, Rick feared that the figure had heard them, but it rose again and straightened up. Too far to attack yet, but then he saw a hand stealing into the white robe and his heart leapt to his throat. He had seen knives come out of such robes and knew they could wait no longer. Without a sound, Rick's legs buckled, and the next split second he and Scotty were flying through the air, straight for the figure in the darkness. Scotty hit him at the neck, and Rick tackled him squarely at the knees. The figure bounced like a rubber ball, but their quarry wasn't giving up. Arms were flailing under the white robes, and legs were kicking. In a flash, Scotty was astride the prostrate figure and pinioning the arms to the ground. The light! he yelled at Rick. Rick reached for his flashlight and flipped on its switch. Then he turned its beam squarely into the face of the prowler beneath them. There, staring up into their eyes, was a face Rick had thought he would never see again. It was Chata. It seemed unbelievable that the native boy could have managed to follow them all the way from Bombay. And yet here he was. Rick and Scotty fired eager questions at him. But it wasn't until later, over a good breakfast, that they heard the whole story. Fully aware that all eyes were on him, Chada sipped a cup of steaming tea slowly and with relish, deliberately prolonging the moment with his natural flair for the dramatic. Rick grinned to himself as Scotty and the professor shifted uneasily. This, he thought, was Chada's moment, and the Hindu boy intended to make the most of it. At last, Chada put the teacup down and smiled at the faces around him. Very good tea, he said politely. Scotty exploded. Come on, can't you see we're waiting for you to tell us all about everything? Chada settled himself comfortably. It is like this, he smiled at Rick. You remember we talk about the map? How I say it is not like what sahibs in Nepal say. Yeah, I remember, Rick said. You did not believe me, Chada accused. I went away. So quiet no one could see, and I went to the house of a Sikh. He is an old man, this one. When I know him before, he is Rizaldar Major in Nepal. That's a rank in the British colonial cavalry, Weiss supplied. He know this Tibet good, Chara continued. I think myself he know about this map, but he is not home. So I sit on his stairs and wait, and such time passes, but this one does not go. He waves his hand in an airy gesture. Not Chada, he waits some more. Go on, go on, Why said impatiently. Yes, Sahib, soon comes the Sikh Sahib, and he has forgotten me because I have new clothes, like a Hazur, but soon he remembers and he shows me his maps of Tibet, and I show him the path from the maps. 
he looks and he makes a great rumble in his beard, like so. Chara demonstrated with a low growl, and he says, Ayay, such a bad thing. How did the Sahibs get such a path? And I say that the maps were sent by the Asiatic Geo... Geo... Geographical Union, Rick said helpfully. Yes, he knows these people good. He takes me to them, and I show them the path, and they say that they make no such path like this on the maps of the Sahibs. They draw new maps and say, this is the path we draw. My friend give me the new maps, and I run for the station. But when I come, the train has gone. I see Sahib Rick, and I shout so loud. I shout, it is the wrong map. Then, Van Groot Sahib, bang, I am dead. My new clothes, they get dirt on them. But soon I am waking up. And he paused dramatically. And gone are the maps. Van Groot, Scotty exclaimed. If I ever get my hands on that walking cough drop, I'll break his damn neck. He's behind everything. He must have switched the maps. That's why he was so long in bringing them. I'm afraid it looks that way, Scotty. Hobart Zircon agreed. But why? Julius Weiss asked. What could they hope to gain? Rick answered for all of them. Well, if we knew that, he stopped. But we've said that before. Anyway, now we know that Van Groot is behind it. Van Groot and Conway, if there's any difference. But Van Groot's route should take us to the Tengipu Plateau, Zircon mused. Are you sure of that, sir? Rick asked. He might be sending us into a dead end of some kind. I guess that's a possibility, but... Somehow, in spite of the evidence, I doubt it. We've only got the word of this little boy for it, Weiss added. Chada corrected him politely. Soon, maybe sixteen years, Sahib Weiss. The professor smiled. Sorry, Chada, I'd forgotten you were almost grown up. Well, anyway, let's hear the rest of your story. Chada accepted a fresh cup of tea from one of the bears. Oh, the rest is most short. On the next train to Nepal is an English sahib. So much money. Many people work for him. I make believe I am number three boy, and I ride on the train to Nepal. So easy. But when I get to Nepal, there are no more trains. At Nepal, Chada had acquired this long, white-padded coat he wore. Just how, he didn't explain. Probably borrowed, Rick thought. Then, with a few rupees left from the money Zircon had given him to buy clothes, he had bought bricks of tea, a tin can for heating the tea, and a kind of compressed wheat. Rice had completed his meager rations, and he found water wherever he could. Then he had started out after the caravan, hiking as fast as possible, trying to catch up, and sleeping at night wrapped in the padded coat. We owe a lot to this little guy, Rick thought. Coming after us like that, on short rations, almost freezing at night. That's real loyalty. The Hindu boy continued, groaning realistically. All this time I have been walking, and my feet are sore. Soon I see the sahibs, but I must go slow, because people are watching. The party exchanged glances. The watcher Scotty had seen. Did you get a look at these people, Chada? Zirkan asked. Yes, Sahib Sirkan, 
Once I hid in the rocks, and one went by close, and I almost touched him. He is like Chinaman's, but not the same. He is small like me, and he shaved his head and wore clothes with pads. He had plates on his chest made from, from, what is called skin from animals, please? Leather? Brick asked. Yes, he's so, Chata assented. He's also carry a, a... He made motions with his hands, and a light dawned. A bow and arrow, Rick exclaimed, and Chada nodded. Weiss ticked off the points on his fingers. Small like a Chinese, but not precisely. Shaven head, parted clothing, leather armor, and a bow and arrow. Hobart, what does that mean to you? A Mongol. Exactly, but it's quite impossible. A Mongol such as Chada describes would have lived five or six centuries ago. But he saw one, Rick said. So he did, and I doubt he could have made up such a tale. I'm afraid we have another mystery on our hands, Weiss sighed. Rick grinned at Chada. Anything else? One small thing. I forgot to say this. Before I am taking train, I went back to Sikh Sahib. And he helped. We went to the geo, geo, what you said before. He reached into his capacious padded garment. And we got these. And Chada drew out a thick sheaf of the corrected maps. <laughs>